to all of you who've turned out on a Sunday morning early. Um, I'm just hoping we don't have a power cut. That would be <laughs> rather difficult to deal with. So if any of you have a hotline to the god of electricity, perhaps you could put in a word. Um, I, I'm afraid I've got no pretty pictures to show you. That's just too difficult to do remotely. So you'll just have to look at me or close your eyes. So um, I want to talk about the, the so-called hard problem, as, as we all know, that's the, the way it's, it's phrased these days, of how matter and consciousness relate. And frankly, there has been little or no progress on this over many decades. I wonder if it's because of the way we conceive the problem. A problem's only as hard as the way you set it up. Um, if, you're, if your task is to get blood out of a stone, then you certainly have a hard problem. Um, I'm not actually going to be able to give you a rundown on my book, The Matter With Things, which I finished only a couple of days ago, after seven years, um, because it's too long. But what I will just say is that uh, in it, I suggest um, that most of the building blocks, if you like, of reality, time and space, uh, flow, movement, consciousness, matter, um, uh, value, and even a sense of the sacred are all different um, depending on how you view them. You may possibly know that I wrote a book called The Master and His which deals with the difference in the take on the world of the two hemispheres. Um, and I suggest that most of these paradoxes uh, <coughs> are illuminated by seeing how the left hemisphere would understand it and how the right hemisphere would understand it. Um, uh, uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the day, the right hemisphere sees much more of the picture. <laughs> there we are. Now, um, Lucretius, writing in the first century BC, was probably the first person to argue that consciousness depends on the brain. And he, he reasoned that since mental faculties are affected, first by the maturation and then by the degeneration of the brain, and since alcohol and drugs alter experience, since epilepsy and head injuries alter consciousness, and since memories appear to be stored in the brain, it follows that mind is dependent on the brain for its existence. Now, this same set of observations lies behind the popular belief that matter gives rise to mind. In the era of brain scanning, in which it might seem that mental events can be visualized through their brain correlates, it's even harder for many to resist such a conclusion. But the fact that there is a close relationship between two entities that run in parallel doesn't tell you anything about the nature of the relationship. One might give rise to the other, or the other might give rise to one, or both of them might be the products of a third process which underwrites both. And I suggest that the way in which we can conceive what the brain does in relation to consciousness could be split into three possible theories. The first, and the one that is most popular these days, is to me the least probable, and I'll explain why. It is that the brain emits consciousness as if the gallbladder secretes gall. Another is that the brain transmits consciousness. After all, if a visitor from Mars were to inspect uh, a TV set, he wouldn't be able to tell whether the uh, TV set generated the pictures that were visible on the screen or transmitted them. The thing would look exactly the same, and so would our brains. 
There is a third possibility, which I think is the most interesting and the one to which I will be uh, trying to steer our discussion, which is that the brain neither emits nor transmits exactly, but permits a form of transmission which actually shapes something into being. Now, why the prejudice that consciousness depends on matter? I think this comes from the sort of cheery, reassuring notion that matter is solid and obvious and clear, and at least we understand that. So let's start from that and try and see how on earth we can get consciousness out of it. But as you know, matter is just not that simple. In fact, the closer you look at matter, the more it becomes evanescent and as problematic as consciousness itself. Indeed, it is almost impossible, or according to most physicists, absolutely impossible to separate consciousness and matter. Now, Sir Charles Sherrington, uh, in his great masterpiece, Man on His Nature, wrote about this, for myself, what little I know of the one doesn't, speaking personally, even begin to help me towards the how of the other. The two, for all I can do, remain refractorily apart. They seem to me disparate, not mutually convertible, not translatable, the one into the other. Now, the fact that he says the how, uh, I'm always alert to that because one of the distinctions, I believe, between the take of the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere on the world is that the left hemisphere focuses relentlessly on the what, um, and the right hemisphere is more able to see that the how influences what the what is. So this how may be a clue. Now, if, if we are going to try and resolve Sherrington's problem, and I think we would all probably agree um, with his feeling that they seem quite separate and incommensurate, there are a number of strategies. First of all, we could deny the existence of consciousness altogether. So we just have matter. I suppose symmetrically, we could deny the existence of matter and say that all there is is consciousness. A third option would be to say that they both do exist, but are totally distinct. Or fourthly, that they exist, but are in fact the same. Or fifthly, and the one that I shall <laughs> be favoring in this talk, that they are distinct phenomena reflecting different aspects of a nonetheless indivisible reality. Now, what do we mean by consciousness? It's traditional to define your terms before you start, but I don't think we'd ever get started if we tried to define this one. It's a quagmire, and it means many things. For example, it means what you don't have when you're in a coma. But it also means something that has just slipped your mind. I wasn't conscious of it. So uh, for those of you who are interested in the dissection of this term, I recommend Adam Zeman's marvellous book, Consciousness, a User's Guide. But I'm not going to go there because I want to move on to deal with the, the reasons we're here this morning to speak. I'm going to call whatever consciousness is the experiential, the broadly experiential. And this covers all the activities that go on for each of us, as we say, unconsciously and pre-consciously, as well as consciously, but couldn't go on without what is conventionally referred to as subjectivity or inwardness of some kind. So I'd say um, we need to stop thinking of them as two separate 
chambers, the conscious and the unconscious. Uh, we think of them as like sort of a couple of fish tanks, one above the other, and occasionally a little trap door opens and things fly up from the unconscious into the conscious and, and so on. Uh, I, I'd rather put in your mind the image of a stage, uh, which is in darkness except for an area that is illuminated by a spotlight. Now that spotlight can move anywhere on the stage, and what is in the spotlight we become fully aware of at that moment. But the other parts have not gone away or become any less real or important, and all that would be required would be to move the spotlight and they'd come forward into focus. And it's, um, I think, very well recognised by it's not a matter of dispute, really, amongst scientists and philosophers, that the extent of the unconscious is extraordinary compared with the extension of the conscious. One worthy soul um, calculated that 99.44% uh, of all our mental activity is unconscious. Well, you don't have to buy the accuracy to get the general drift. And I should stress that what goes on in unconsciousness is not in any way inferior to what goes on in consciousness. I make discriminations, I reason, I make judgments, I find things beautiful, solve problems, take decisions, weigh possible outcomes, imagine possibilities, exercise acquired skills, fall in love, and struggle to balance competing desires and moral values all the time without being reflexively aware of it. And note that these are not just calculations, but rely on my whole embodied being, my experience, my history, my memory, my feelings, my thoughts, my personality, even, dare I say it, my soul, psyche, in the broadest sense. And what is interesting is that a number of philosophers have suggested that there's something wrong when we're conscious of things, that things work best when we're not conscious of them, and consciousness uh, is like a sort of um, uh, emergency rescue team which is brought in when uh, we, co we confront a problem. Now, if all of this is going on largely um, outside of uh, my uh, consciousness, it might be asked if it's really then I that carry out these actions. Well, uh, I think we would get into a, an argument about what I is. If you identify I only with the bit that Descartes thought it identified with the bit that was consciously thinking, then uh, yes, uh, that I is not involved. But I am all of those things that I elicited, my feelings, my experience, my judgments, and so forth. And uh, two German philosophers, uh, Lichtenberg in the 18th century and Schelling in the, 18, in the 19th century, um, both thought that you could say, es denkt, it thinks in me. And, and so what I'm going to suggest is the phrase that these are events that take place in the field of me. Now, Wolfgang Pauli, the physicist, said there's a psyche long before there's consciousness. And uh, a couple of philosophers, uh, A.N. Whitehead, I think this is very nice, said operations of thought are like cavalry charges in a battle. They're strictly limited in number, they require fresh horses, and must only be made at decisive moments. And the philosopher F.C.S. Schiller said only when the guidance of life by habit, instinct, and impulse breaks down do we become conscious. And further, William James, one of my heroes, said it's a general principle in psychology that consciousness deserts 
all processes where it can no longer be of use. Now, if you think of a surgeon or a pilot or a chess player, in the phase in which they're acquiring skill, they have to be very conscious. But when they've really become skillful, it's disadvantageous for them to be conscious. That has now, now passed into what William James calls the, the, the realm in which consciousness can desert it. So to go back to my options of things that can resolve this problem, can we deny the existence of consciousness altogether? Well, this gambit has been tried, believe it or not. And uh, the philosopher Galen Strawson says of this something I think rather good. I'm just going to read this passage. Some philosophers are prepared to deny the existence of experience. At this we should stop and wonder. I think we should feel very sober and a little afraid at the power of human credulity, the capacity of human minds to be gripped by theory, by faith. For this particular denial is the strangest thing that has ever happened in the whole history of human thought, not just the whole history of philosophy. It falls, unfortunately, to philosophy, not religion, to reveal the deepest woo-woo of the human mind. I find this grievous, but next to this denial, every known religious belief is only a little less sensible than the belief that grants green. For as he puts it, experience is itself the fundamental given natural fact. There is nothing more certain than the existence of experience. I entirely agree with that. Daniel Dennett, who's a, um, one of those who believes that it's an illusion, uh, is on what I would have thought rather um, dodgy ground, because for it to be an illusion requires a consciousness in which the illusion can occur and somebody or something that can be eluded. So uh, he says it seems we have experience, but we don't actually. It's an illusion. But when it comes to experience, as Strawson points out, you can't open up the is-seems gap. If you have or feel you have consciousness and experience, then you have it. So could consciousness, be, in fact, be reduced to anything at, else at all? Well, if it's the fundamental given fact, I wouldn't have thought so. And I don't think that physicists who have actually got nearest to the problem of consciousness and matter would agree with this idea at all. I'm going to quote a number of them, I'm afraid, um, because I'm not a physicist and therefore I need to um, defer to authorities on that. We, but think about this. We know about the experiential directly from experience, while we assume the non-experiential only indirectly from experience. Similarly, it cannot be denied, denied that matter is something disclosed to me by my mind. I do not know that mind is something disclosed to me by matter. It might or it might not. So Strawson says, if we ask what evidence there is for the existence of non-experiential concrete reality, the answer is easy and mathematically precise. There is zero evidence, nor will there ever be any. There's a sort of reverse anthropomorphism, which means that because we don't see inanimate matter doing the sort of things we do, it can't have any kind of awareness. Um, and I think this is uh, an ungrounded, as Strawson says, assumption. It's a kind of intuition, but it's one we ought to examine. And certainly to say that experience exists, but is really just something whose nature can be fully specified in wholly non-experiential functional terms is to deny its existence. So philosophers think 
often that perhaps they can explain consciousness as something that emerges from matter. And they point to the idea that the wetness of water emerges from H2O molecules. But Strawson, I think, again, gives a very clear answer to this. For any feature, Y, of anything that's currently considered to be emergent from X, there must be something about X and X alone in virtue of which Y emerges and which is sufficient for Y. And this is not like H2O to water at all, because from observing H2O molecules, we know and can predict that they would uh, flow easily over one another. But there is no feature of matter as conventionally conceived that it explains how it could possibly give on its own rise to consciousness. I say no feature of matter as conventionally conceived because I think we need to reconceive matter. So how about this whole concept of emerging? On this, William James was terribly funny, I think. He said, the idea is that somehow just before consciousness, there's something that leads into it but isn't consciousness. It's sort of nascent, nascent consciousness. But nascent means not yet quite born. And he refers to um, an exchange in a, in a 19th century novel called Midshipman Easy, in which a young woman has had an illegitimate baby. And when um, taxed with this, she excuses it by saying, but if you please, sir, it's just a very little one. And it can't be just a very little one uh, before there is consciousness. There either is or there isn't. It can have degrees, but it either is there or it isn't there, and you can't make the being there come out of the not being there. Uh, so if evolution is to work smoothly, consciousness in some shape must have been present at the very origin of things, says William James. And Colin McGinn, a, a contemporary philosopher, puts it with customary vividness, you might as well assert that numbers emerge from biscuits or ethics from rhubarb. V.S. Ramachandran and Colin Blakemore, two very distinguished mainstream neuroscientists, in their entry on consciousness in the Oxford Companion to the Body, conclude that consciousness, like gravity, mass and charge, may be one of the irreducible properties of the universe for which no further account is possible. According to Heisenberg, if we go beyond biology and include psychology in the discussion, then there can scarcely be any doubt that the concepts of physics, chemistry and evolution together will not be sufficient to describe the facts. And this is very similar to Niels Bohr's uh, insight that consciousness must be part of nature or more generally of reality, which means that quite apart from the laws of physics and chemistry as laid down in quantum theory, we must also consider laws of a quite different kind. And in a similar vein, the contemporary uh, professor of astronomy at uh, Rochester in New York, Adam Frank, writes that we must entertain the radical possibility that some rudimentary form of consciousness must be added to the list of things such as mass or electric charge that the world is built of. So there's not really a lot going for the idea that we can dismiss consciousness. So could we dismiss matter? We could resolve the problem by getting rid of the other party in this improbable equation. Now, paradoxically, matter is itself an abstraction which no one has ever seen. We've only seen elements of the world to which we attribute the quality within our consciousness of being material. It both substitutes an idea for an experience, which is a kind of event, and in doing so produces something static, no longer in process, 
no longer an experience, now a thing, matter as a, a thing that we can't actually contact. According to Niels Bohr, isolated material particles are abstractions, their properties being definable and observable only through their interactions with other systems. In other words, materialism derives the only thing we undeniably know, the presence of experience, from an unknown abstraction, matter. And Frank says, materialists appeal to physics to explain the mind, he writes. But in modern physics, the particles that make up a brain remain in many ways as mysterious as consciousness itself. And he continues, some consciousness researchers might think they're being hard-nosed and concrete when they appeal to the authority of physics. When pressed on this issue, though, we physicists are often left looking at our feet, smiling sheepishly and mumbling something about it's complicated. We know that matter remains mysterious, just as mind remains mysterious, and we don't know what the connections between the mysteries should be. Classifying consciousness as a material problem is tantamount to saying that consciousness, too, remains fundamentally unexplained. And he points out that, that modern physics has put the perceiving subject back into physics, seems to undermine the whole materialist perspective. And he puts it this way, a theory of mind that depends on matter, that depends on mind, couldn't yield the solid ground so many materialists yearn for. However, it seems to me that we can no more deny matter than consciousness. I don't want to end up trying to do a massive feat of explaining way, away of either of these, in my view, obviously real uh, entities in our experience. So if asked my view... I would say that matter appears to me an element with consciousness, within consciousness that provides the necessary resistance for creation and with it inevitably for individuality to arise. All individual beings, including ourselves, bring forms into being and cause them to persist. Each of us is not ultimately any one conformation of matter, but like the ship of Theseus, the conformation itself, the morphogenetic field, which requires matter in order to be brought into being, but once existent, persists while matter comes and goes within it. Uh, what I mean by the ship of Theseus is the paradox, an ancient, uh, para ancient Greek paradox, that at the end of his voyages, Theseus' ship was uh, preserved in the harbour as a memorial to his uh, heroic uh, enterprises. And over the years, whenever a timber rotted, it was replaced. And after 30 years, every timber had been replaced. Was this still the ship of Theseus? Well, we are like the ship of Theseus. There aren't cells in my body uh, now that there were seven years ago. Everything changes, but I think that nonetheless there is a persistence that we can identify. And all those years ago, 200 years ago, Schopenhauer said, I think very perceptively, matter is that which persists and endures for a time. So it's what makes consciousness take on a persisting form for a while and allows the otherwise undifferentiated soup of one consciousness to take different forms. And I believe that, I can't prove it, but I believe that the drive of the cosmos is towards differentiation. So um, Frank puts this, uh, so rather than trying to sweep away the mystery of mind by attributing to the mechanisms of matter, we must grapple with the intertwined nature of the two, to which I say here, here. Now, 
are matter and consciousness then one and the same? Well, Descartes thought that he had a major problem because there were two substances he could identify. There was the material substance, which he called res extensa, um, the, the matter that has extension, and res cogitans, the matter that does thinking. And he couldn't see how the one of them could conceivably interact with the other. I don't blame him for that. That each affects the other, though, is amply confirmed by modern physics, if by nothing else. It's indisputable that observation changes the nature of what happens. Uh, and there are other uh, reasons for believing they interact, which I'll come to later. So the idea that they're so separate that they cannot interact can safely be dismissed. Are they perhaps then the same? Well, Schopenhauer thought they are, in fact, really one and the same thing considered from two opposite points of view. And the, I think, highly insightful and intelligent uh, astrophysicist, Swiss astrophysicist of the last century, Karl von Feitzecker, said consciousness and matter are different aspects of the same reality. Now, it doesn't cut much ice with me if you say, but they don't look alike or behave similarly. Uh, I'm agreed in that, but then water and ice uh, don't look like one another. One of them is flowing and transparent. The other one is opaque and so hard it can split your head open. And water can also take the form of something that's entirely invisible uh, in, in space around us. So water has phases. Uh, I don't mean temporal phases. I mean the phases that chemists speak of. And why shouldn't consciousness have phases? Maybe matter is a particular phase of consciousness whereby it becomes more measurable and extensible um, and takes on a form which causes whatever it's in to persist. Or not what it's in, but what it is to persist. So we have to give up a conception of matter that excludes consciousness and a conception of consciousness that precludes matter, even though we may be able to conceive them distinctly only one at a time. And here I just refer to the fact that mass and energy are interconvertible. E equals mc squared, probably the most famous equation in physics. The brain, I'd like to suggest to you, is a manifestation of something as mass, whereas the mind is a manifestation as energy. There's nothing mere about matter. There's nothing merely physical about the physical. Um, and it's constantly interacting with us. Planck, Max Planck, famous physicist, puts it like this. As every act of research measurement has a more or less causal influence on the very process that is under observation, it's practically impossible to separate the law that we're seeking to discover behind the happening itself from the methods that are being used to bring about the discovery. And more emphatically, in Schrodinger, it's the same elements that go to compose my mind and the world. The world is given to me only once, not one existing and one perceived. Subject and object are only one. The barrier between them cannot be said to have been broken down as a result of recent experience in the physical sciences, for this barrier does not exist. Mm. So do we make reality up? I would resist that uh, conclusion for a whole host of reasons. But I, what I would say is the way in which we approach nature governs what we find. The how of our attention to the world changes what there is there for us to find. And I would like to 
suggests that we do actually deal with reality and know it, not just a representation of it, but just with an aspect of it, a limited aspect of it at any one moment, that we partly create ourselves by our approach to it. The fact that we play a part in its being, what it is, doesn't make it unreal. We help midwife into being something in the cosmos. We neither make reality up, nor is it simply out there for us to discover. We bring about a communion between our minds and the world. And if, as Schrodinger says, they're made of the same stuff, then that's easy to see how that could happen. However, I think we should still discriminate between matter and consciousness. It would be a shame to give up this rather important um, intuitive distinction. And if they're different, in what respect? Well, we know uh, consciousness is creative. And we know consciousness is surer than matter. At least I believe I have just said why I believe that to be the case. It's more probable that matter could emerge from our consciousness than that consciousness could observe, uh, emerge from matter. And here again, Colin McGinn says, the origin of consciousness somehow drawing upon those properties of the universe that antedate and explain the occurrence of the Big Bang, that could be one difference. Here again, Max Planck, probably, you know, with Bohr, one of the two greatest physicists of the last hundred years, was famously asked whether he thought consciousness could be explained in terms of matter and its laws. No, he replied. I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. And 13 years later, and three years before he died, Planck went further. As a physicist, and therefore as a man who spent his whole life in the service of the most down-to-earth science, namely the exploration of matter, no one is going to take me for a starry-eyed dreamer. After all my exploration of the atom, then, let me tell you this, there is no matter as such. All matter arises and exists only by virtue of a force which sets the atomic particles oscillating and holds them together in that tiniest of solar systems, the atom. We must suppose behind this force a conscious, intelligent spirit. This spirit is the ultimate origin of matter. His colleague Eugene Wigner concurs, it will remain remarkable in whatever way our future concepts may develop that the very study of the external world led to the scientific conclusion that the content of consciousness is the ultimate universal reality. And the great astronomer, physicist and mathematician, Sir Arthur Eddington, uh, wrote a passage that I'm, I will quote in full, the universe is of the nature of a thought or sensation in a universal mind. To put the conclusion crudely, the stuff of the world is mind stuff. As is often the way with crude statements, I shall have to explain that by mind, I do not exactly mean mind, and by stuff, I do not at all mean stuff. Still, this is about as near as we can get to the idea in a simple phrase. The mind stuff of the world is, of course, something more general than our individual conscious minds, but we may think of its nature as not altogether foreign to the feelings in our consciousness. It's the physical aspects of the world that we have to explain. It's difficult for the matter-of-fact physicist to accept the view that the substratum of everything is of mental character, but no one can deny that mind is the first and most direct thing in our experience, and all else is remote inference, inference either intuitive or deliberate. 
Um, to show that uh, these are not isolated eccentrics, I'll just quote a few more. Sir James Jeans, a physicist, astronomer, and mathematician, the stream of knowledge is heading towards a non-mechanical reality. The universe begins to look more like a great thought than like a great machine. Mind no longer appears to be an accidental intruder into the realm of matter. We ought rather hail it as the creator and governor of the realm of matter. Uh, Roger Penrose, I think the matter itself is now much more of a mental substance. Astronomical physicist Richard Con Henry, writing in Nature, the universe is entirely mental and we must learn to perceive it as such. Astrophysicist Bernard Heisch, it is not matter that creates an illusion of consciousness, but consciousness that creates the illusion of matter. So presumably, again, it depends on what you mean by reality. Well, it's not the way it seems till it seems it to you, must we conclude that it's invented ex nihilo by your looking at it? Surely not. The moon is there even when nobody's looking at it. There are constraints on what it can be, otherwise everything would be as true as everything else, and thought, speech, action, and even existence itself would become pointless. So here I'm going to be a little bit critical of Eddington, his most famous passage. We have found that where science has progressed the farthest, the mind has but regained from nature that which the mind has put into nature. We have found a strange footprint on the shores of the unknown. We have devised profound theories, one after another, to account for its origin. At last we've succeeded in reconstructing the theory that made the, sorry, reconstructing the creature that made the footprint. And lo, it is our own. Now, stirring as the passage may be, I miss reciprocity here. Um, for reasons of a lifetime of philosophizing, everything, it seems to me, is resonant or reverberative. It's never unidirectional. Um, everything comes out of what I call betweenness, the relation of things. Indeed, I argue in the book I'm writing, which may seem a little paradoxical, that relation is prior to relata, the things that are related. Uh, that, that takes up defending, but I think I can defend it. So what I would prefer is the rather modest statement by John Archibald Wheeler, another very famous physicist. This is a participatory universe. And he goes on, modern quantum theory, the overarching principles of 20th century physics, leads to a view that man or intelligent life or communicating observer participators are the whole means by which the very universe is created. Without them, nothing. Well, I agree with that, but it's not just that they bring it about on their own. They bring it about as part of a conjunctive uh, process. Now, the process of our acquiring knowledge alters in some essential way what we find when we look. And in other words, the process is genuinely creative. A core theme of the book I'm writing is that we are not just observers of the world that have to respond to it in a in a moral and, and, and decent way that maximizes our happiness, but we actually have the considerable honor and burden of helping shape what is. And after all, there has to be an electron to observe that we didn't put there, but the particular qualities and measurable characteristics of that electron come from our observation of it and maybe from the very way in which we attend to it. This takes me to the nice thought of Goethe, um, you know, the great poet and, and I believe philosopher and scientist, um, who's, who said that we develop faculties in response to the things that we encounter. 
In other words, we grow faculties in response to something that is other than us. And things do emerge from our attention to reality, depending on the scale. For example, and this is a, an example um, from Taiza and Kefatos, um, an ant colony from um, some way away seems like a solid, identifiable black moving mass. Um, but as you get closer, you see individual ants. And as you go into the ants, you see particular cells. And as you go on down, you see uh, molecules. Now, at no, which is the right way to see these ants? Which is the truth? There is no one perspective that can see the whole. I like that very much. We can see an aspect of reality at any one time, but it's only one aspect. It's not that we don't get near seeing reality and it's all just a representation. We do actually get reality, but we only get one part of it, if you like. And what I like about this idea you can't see everything is imaged in probably the most famous of all the Zen rock gardens, the Garden of Ryuanji, in which there are 15 stones, but they're so placed that there is no place in the garden from which you can see all 15. You can never see more than 14. Freeman Dyson had an interesting observation on this question of scale. Um, he, uh, he said, when you look at a frog, you can see it in a sort of mechanical way, if you like. Certainly when you get down to the level of a cell, it seems more mechanical. As you get down to the DNA, it seems perhaps more mechanical still. But as you get down into the molecules that compose DNA, it stops being mechanical and starts to, be, to obey principles that we don't entirely understand, those of the probabilistic nature of matter. So is consciousness uh, then not just in us, but in everything that exists? This is panpsychism, and it's recently become quite popular in philosophy, I'm pleased to say, partly because of the efforts of Galen Strawson and partly a Christian de Quincey in California, and is now a wagon on which a number of um, formerly um, rather tiresome philosophers have jumped on board. So this is very good. And it's an ancient idea. Heraclitus and Empedocles, who are both pre-Socratic philosophers, um, were panpsychists. And so uh, in the 18th, 17th, 18th century, Spinoza and Leibniz and Herder and Schopenhauer and even Russell, Bertrand Russell, good old Bertie, for comparison, he said, you know, we know the intrinsic character of the mental world to some extent, but we know absolutely nothing of the intrinsic character of the physical world. And he goes on to describe how things we think of as inanimate behave in a way that a shift of perspective would show us is just, if you like, a kind of version of animacy. Um, so Julian Huxley wrote that the relationship between mind and matter is so close that mind or something with the nature of mind must exist throughout the entire universe. This, I believe, is the truth. We may never be able to prove it, but it's the most economical hypothesis, which is all science can ever do. It can't prove that something is definitely the case. It can only find the best fit at the time. And he says it fits the facts much more simply than one-sided idealism or one-sided materialism. And if you think about brute emergence, the idea that somewhere in history consciousness just wasn't there and then a second later it was, um, that's a miracle and is why 
we don't believe that, or now people are saying there must be consciousness there from the word go, panpsychism. But if you think about the beginnings of life, this miracle has to be repeated every single time a living thing is born, because if the embryo, and certainly the baby, has a kind of consciousness, I believe the embryo does as well, um, but the sperm and egg are denied consciousness, this utter miracle of brute emergence has to take place millions of times every day. An interesting idea. I'd rather have panpsychism. So I'm going to recap, and then we'll have a break. Um, so what we've established, um, or what I believe I have um, suggested to you in this first part, is that mind and matter have a close relationship, that we cannot logically dismiss the existence of consciousness, and that we ought to be unwilling to dismiss the existence of matter, that they're not so distinct that they cannot interact, but neither are they identical, and yet they may be aspects of one and the same reality. Nonetheless, they're not equal, and in that there's reason to believe that consciousness is prior ontologically to matter. Intuitively, we tend to think of consciousness as, uh, well, in, in, in history we've thought of it as uh, peculiar to human beings, but we tend to think nowadays that it's at least um, uh, something we would ascribe mainly to living beings. I don't think there is a hard and fast divide between the living and the inanimate. Um, there's a massive uh, divide uh, of quality, um, but they are in fact coextensive, I think. And David Bohm pointed out that what animacy gives is a massively speeded up version of inanimacy. Inanimate things change their forms and move extremely slowly, but life can do these things uh, trillions of times faster. But I wouldn't say that there is a hard and fast distinction and in physics, that the observer's consciousness has been readmitted to the world of matter um, is, I think, uh, a demonstration, in fact, um, that these things can't be kept entirely separate. We're not distinct from, as it were, over against nature. We emerge out of, live within, and return to nature. And in fact, we, I could put it this way, we are nature herself reflecting on nature, an idea I'll come back to. Um, James Shapiro, who's a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Chicago, uh, has written a lot about cells, and I think very persuasively, as others like Bruce Lipton have claimed, um, living cells do not operate blindly. Uh, he says, life requires cognition at all levels. So, according to Shapiro, cells then have cognition. Is the purpose in nature? It's intrinsically impossible to decide this. We will never know. Um, there isn't a test for it. Uh, but which supposition meets with our experience better? When you watch a cell exploring its environment, adapting to its environment, you have to do what A.N. Whitehead called heroic feats of explaining away to deny that there is some sort of purpose manifest here. I believe there is purpose throughout nature and indeed purpose throughout um, what exists. 
uh, it seems to me that giving everything, given everything else we know, the explanatory burden is on those who would have mindless, purposeless mechanisms give rise to sentient beings with purposes and to tell us how, why, and at what point they do so. So where do brains fit in? Are neurons, let alone brains, necessary for awareness? Well, it seems that neuronal complexity, which has been um, touted as one of the explanations for consciousness, neuronal complexity is neither sufficient nor even necessary for awareness. And I'll talk quite a bit about this now. There are 16 to 26 billion neurons in the human cerebral cortex. But there are a staggering 69 to 101 billion neurons, thus approximately four times as many in the cerebellum. And it's not that these are simpler cells. They include Purkinje cells, which are some of the biggest and most complexly ramified cells in the brain. Yet the cerebellum is completely incapable of supporting self-awareness, what we normally call waking consciousness. And, and there are a dozen cases of people who on post-mortem are found have no cerebellum whatever, um, but they'd uh, functioned apparently normally, or almost normally. Um, in any case, complexity is not always advantageous. A recent paper entitled Optimal Degrees of Synaptic Connectivity claims that, this is a quote, sparse connectivity is sometimes superior to dense connectivity. Now, that's a finding that helps to explain the otherwise mind-boggling fact that the mean number of neurons reaches a maximum at 28 weeks of gestation and then declines by approximately 70%, not to approximately 70%, declines by approximately 70% to achieve a stable number of neurons around birth. And in a, a very nice paper, a neurologist, John Lauber, uh, reported, uh, he titled the paper provocatively, Is Your Brain Really Necessary? And he described the case of a young man at Leeds University who gained a first-class honours degree in mathematics and was socially completely normal and had an IQ of 126. And yet, to quote Lorber, the boy has virtually no brain. <laughs> so he had, where we normally have um, a, a mantle of cortex that's... Um, four or five centimeters thick, his was only a couple of millimeters uh, thick. And this is not an unusual case. Patrick Wall says that the literature is um, littered with such cases, and indeed it is. Um, and there is a condition called hydranencephaly, not hydrocephaly, but hydranencephaly. The distinction here being not just that there is um, an excess of fluid uh, inside the skull, but that there is no brain there there is just water. So such people have minimal or practically non-existent cortex. Um, and yet a study of four of them between the ages of 10 and 18 revealed that they all nevertheless possessed discriminative awareness. They had functional vision, could orient themselves, could distinguish familiar from unfamiliar people and environments, showed toy preferences, could interact socially, could respond to and discriminate pieces of music and demonstrated not just awareness of their own body, but appropriate effective responses to others as well as associative learning. 
and one of them passed the mirror test which is thought that only human beings can do but we now know that lots of creatures can do it which is to recognize that the reflection in the mirror is you so that's pretty staggering for people who have virtually no brain so let's go where there are no neurons at all let's not beat about the bush let's take slime mold now slime molds uh, clearly don't have neurons they are just uh, a, a convenient grouping together of rather simple cells catch there are no such things as simple cells anyway um slime molds you have to be careful with slime molds you keep them in the lab you have to to um uh, tighten the lid because they can escape from petri dishes and they can solve mazes like rats um, they can discriminate between types of food and know which way to go to get it. Um, and they're aware of the environment in such a way as to act apparently intelligently on preferences, initiate sequences of behavior that are coordinated and flexible, learn from experience and memorize, and produce what appear to be a complex series of transformations in the whole organism carried out at the level of individual cells, which at some stages act independently, but at others in the service of higher order of structure of which the individual cells appear to be aware. So awareness of the environment seems to be exhibited at several different levels, but also together. So, well, c could plants then learn, remember, and make decisions? Um, a number of uh, plant biologists would say very definitely so. It was found right back in the middle of the 19th century that the sensitive plant, Mimosa pudica, um, reacts when you stimulate its leaves by closing up. But after a while, it discovers that when you touch its leaf, nothing much happens, and so it stops closing up. Now, that might just be because it had got a bit tired. But Monica Galliano uh, did some very interesting experiments. And her conclusions were, when I talk about learning, I mean learning. When I talk about memory, I mean memory. And what she did was she took sensitive plants and stroked them with her finger. After a while, as predicted, they stopped closing. But she then put an unfamiliar stimulus, a drop of water on the leaves, and immediately they closed. So they could discriminate the touch of a finger from the touch of water. And she then did a very ingenious experiment, which I hope I'll be able to explain. She took pea plants, and they were grown in an environment where their source of light came down a Y-shaped arrangement above the tray in which they were grown. And so they craved light from one arm or other of this uh, Y. And experimentally, a light would turn on for periods of time in one or another arm, of this Y-shaped maze above the plant. And this would be randomly varied. Um, but for one group of seedlings, a puff of air from a fan coming down the same arm always preceded the light. So for that plant, air down that arm meant this is where the light's going to come from. And for the other group, the setup was similar, except the air came down the arm opposite to the one in which the light would subsequently appear. Now, having been trained to this over a three-day period, the plants equally learnt to predict the light from the stream of air and turned appropriately either towards or away from the light, uh, whichever side in their experience delivered it. Now, that is an extraordinary finding. And she's done many other 
uh, interesting experiments, and she's not alone in this field. I'm not every plant botanist uh, would accept this, but then it always takes time to break down um, some of the, well, it just can't be true uh, kind of um, objections to experimental fact. Do plants have intentions? Well, it would seem that they do, in that they, they, they alter their behavior in order to um, predict things, move in places, and send messages to other plants. And they can process up to 15 kinds of information at a time. And when an animal intends something, you see it because it moves. It uses its muscles. Trees and plants don't have muscles. But intend, in, when they intend something, instead, they grow and change their form. You don't really see this so easily because it's simply a slower process. But a time-lapse camera will show them as if moving quite purposefully um, towards a target. Darwin called um, the movement of plants circummutation, circummutation with an N, um, because what he showed was that the, the trees and plants move that their tendrils, their branches, their leaves, and their roots in a sort of slowly spiraling movement to take in information from the environment. And they go towards and privilege certain areas which produce positive results for them. Is this magic? Not at all. Though it remains awe-inspiring, it's not in conflict with what we know about cell life. A large number of recent scientific studies have confirmed that, in the words of Bruce Lipton, invisible forces of the electromagnetic spectrum have a profound impact on every facet of biological regulation. Microwaves, electromagnetic radiation, the visible light spectrum, extremely low frequencies, acoustic frequencies, and even a newly recognized form of force known as scalar energy. We're used to the idea that um, gravity, for example, can, which is also absolutely immaterial and an invisible force, can very strongly affect matter um, at a distance. Do plants have experientiality? Well, of course, there's no final way of deciding this unless you want to become a plant. I believe it's both a reasonable and an intuitively compelling assumption that they do. Plants appear to be driven to survive, adapt, and help other members of their species, just as we are. They share nutrients when one of them um, is not needing them. It will pass them through the microscopic um, connections between their roots made up by fungi. It will pass messages and pass chemicals to another plant or another tree that needs them, and this will be reciprocated. So is this uh, somehow a departure from the Darwinian view? Not at all. Darwin on earthworms notes that in their assessment of how to solve problems relating to different sizes of leaves and the different shapes of their burrows and how to get the one into the other, they, and this is Darwin's words, act in nearly the same manner as would a man under similar circumstances. And he continues, having dismissed either instinct alone or simple exhaustive trial and error, as a computer would, one alternative alone is left, namely that worms, although standing low in the scale of organization, possess some degree of intelligence. That is Darwin. Some other interesting experiments. Um, fish that were injected with a substance that is thought to cause pain will preferentially swim into an area of water containing a pain-killing substance, even though it is in all other respects an unpreferred environment. They wouldn't swim there if it didn't contain such a substance. 
And about this, the philosopher Peter Godfrey Smith says, they made a choice they'd not normally make, and they made it in a situation where the idea of a more painful or less painful environment would be quite novel to them. Evolution could not have set them up with a reflex reaction to this situation. Crabs and some shrimp nurse injured limbs and groom injured areas. You can still doubt, says Godfrey Smith, that these animals feel anything, yes, but you can doubt that about your next door neighbor. Skepticism is always possible, but a case is being built here. And he distinguishes between theories of consciousness that are what he calls transformer theories and latecomer theories. Um, the transformer theories are that consciousness is there from the outset and is transformed with evolution. The latecomer is that there wasn't consciousness at the outset and it popped in at some point. Now, apart from the fact that this suggests the problem of brute emergence, which is simply a miracle, this miracle has to be performed in the history of the evolution of living creatures at least three times. He establishes to his satisfaction in mind that crabs, octopuses and cats have some form of consciousness. And he says, by the Cambrian period, the vertebrates were already on their own path or their own collection of paths, while arthropods and mollusks were on others. Suppose it's right that crabs, octopuses and cats all have subjective experience of some kind. Then there were at least three separate origins for this trait and perhaps many more than three. This is beginning to look a less hopeful gambit. Um, some interesting little um, tidbits. Honeybees and spiders can do um, simple arithmetic. Crows can remember individual human faces for several years after a single encounter and respond appropriately. They respond to different people in different ways, are capable of solving new logical problems consisting of up to eight steps, including avoiding deliberate distractor tools experimentally put there for them that do not function. Ravens can plan flexibly, barter with one another, and teach their offspring how to use tools. As birds have no neocortex, clearly cortical processing cannot be a requirement for higher order cognition. Corvids, the family of crows and magpies and other birds, can outperform pigeons, primates, and humans at some cognitive tasks. Now, the idea that um, only we have consciousness and animals and birds don't has a somewhat inglorious history. Uh, first of all, there was Descartes saying that when an animal experimentally um, distressed or wounded uh, cries in pain, it's just the creakings of a machine. Um, and this had an impact on the scientific mind such that I was shocked to find that at the time I was training in medicine, in Western countries, neonates were still operated on without an anesthetic because of course they couldn't feel anything, they weren't conscious. And it was only in 1987 that the American Academy of Pediatrics um, gave a, 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 um, a ruling that it was no longer ethical to operate on a newborn baby without an anesthetic, 1987. So why do we have brains at all? Well, this is a difficult one to answer and I don't have the answer. Um, certainly that the fact that 
consciousness can have a material form gives it the necessary permanence for there to be distinct beings to sort of unfold individual potential that's there generally in the cosmos, but it only becomes individually instantiated in the creative process, which I believe the cosmos is. And remember Schopenhauer, matter is that which persists and endures. One theory um, is that um, the brain is able to collapse the wave function in what it observes, not a mechanical effect of consciousness on the system, but it could be the outcome of the observer's brain and the observed system becoming entangled in consciousness. I don't pretend to understand this fully. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody does. A theory has been put out that it has something to do with um, I'm afraid I don't understand it. Phosphate molecules bonded with calcium in so-called posner molecules acting as qubits. D don't ask me to explain it. Um, Henry Stapp, who worked closely with Heisenberg, Pauli and Wheeler, writes, matter can, according to the quantum theory, be strongly influenced by a non-local causal process connected to the person's constant conscious choices and mental efforts. That makes sense. I don't know the precise mechanism. I'm not sure he does either. Consciousness can play a non-redundant causal role in the determination of our actions. It can play the very role that we intuitively feel that it plays. Quantum theory allows your mind and your brain to co-author your physical actions. Now, sometimes it's objected that quantum effects are all very well at the very, very microscopic level, but they wash out, if you like, in the gross world at which we and our brains exist. But Stapp is adamant that this is a total misunderstanding. Quantum effects do not wash out. They are present everywhere at the uh, macroscopic level. And to illustrate this, um, two physicists give the analogy of uncertainty in chains of causation in the very obvious material world. Take the collisions of billiard balls. Um, they are affected by quantum uncertainty. And you might say, but yeah, I know, but for all intents and purposes, that can only be manifested after perhaps trillions of collisions. Well, is it trillions of collisions or perhaps thousands of collisions? The answer is eight. Well, that consciousness interacts with matter an insuperable problem in the 17th century is no longer insuperable since matter is already intrinsically experienced by physics as a field or conceived as a field that interacts with consciousness, which is also a field. And we know that fields interact. Gravity and electromagnetic forces are doing this all the time. So it's not incomprehensible that such fields of force in consciousness affect matter. And it would perhaps be harder to account for if they didn't. In any case, it's not disputed that observation changes the nature of matter, and not just in some incidental fashion. Changes are wrought in the mind, and they, in turn, have material effects. So, scientists are very comfortable and fluent when talking about, oh yes, the brain can have an effect on the body, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the mind having an effect on the brain and the body. I'm taking the junction further back. And there, scientists tend to go rather quiet. But mind and body do influence one another. The placebo effect, one of the most obvious and well-attested and powerful effects on the body, is 
brought about simply by telling a phrase to a person or them seeing an action. Hypnosis can cure a skin condition, which is photographable, visible, and contains um, manifest organic changes in the body. CBT, something as simple as cognitive behavioral therapy, performed thousands of times a day in London, is testimony to the fact that getting people just to think a different thought changes um, their brain, changes the balance of the chemicals in their brain, and will relieve anxiety and depression. So consciousness uh, is causative, and Roy Baumeister, um, uh, I think brilliant psychologist, uh, says, quote, profound, extensive, adapted, multifaceted, and empirically strong evidence of such changes. Of course, all uh, things that we do are a mixture of consciousness and unconsciousness. As I said, consciousness is only a little part of us. Um, and whatever I do, suppose I will to pick up this glass. Um, the last part in the chain is in an axon that runs down my arm to my fingers, and that's not conscious. But nonetheless, part of the chain was conscious, and that's all that's required. It takes place, if you like, in my phrase, in the field of me. For example, when did I write a book? People sometimes ask me, when did I write a book? Well, was it when the book was published? No. Was it when I finished writing the book? Well, no. Was it when I started writing the book? Well, not really. Was it when I started taking notes towards the book? Or when I had that conversation with a friend? Or whatever it was. We can't really say when or what exactly was the moment. But nonetheless, I wrote the book. And Mozart couldn't say where his ideas came from. They just came to him. But we wouldn't say that because of that, Mozart didn't write his Jupiter Symphony. Poincaré solved complex mathematical problems entirely unconsciously. The idea appeared to him one day when he was out shopping and was getting onto a bus. He hadn't been thinking about it at all. That doesn't mean the thought wasn't his or the idea didn't come out of the field of Poincaré. It's a question of where the spotlight was at the time. For example, if I'm playing the organ, the spotlight can't be on each of my fingers and my feet at the same time. It could most be on one of them, and it's probably best that it's on none of them. But you wouldn't say that just because it's an unconscious process, that it's not me that put in all those years and is now performing um, a Toccata and Fugue. And then, of course, there are the well-known Libet experiments um, in which in Canada in the 1980s, uh, subjects were asked um, at a, quote, random moment, which is a problematic concept, because the more you think about being random, the less random it becomes. Um, they were going to will to move a finger, and at the same time, an EEG recording was made from their brain. And the idea was that we would look out for something called the readiness potential. The readiness potential was thought to be something that happened in the brain just before an action. And mysteriously, it was found that this readiness potential seemed to come a second or so or half a second before the moment at which the person said they decided, looking at the clock, they decided they were moving, going to move their finger. But there are a host of problems with this. Um, estimates by such experimental subjects of when they think they decided to carry out an action indicate only the timing of when they came to have a belief about when they became aware of a conscious immediate intention to act. Subjects were instructed at the outset that they would be making choices to move a finger. And so what was going on in their brain all the times was a state of meta-readiness to decide when to make that decision. And there are further problems. Recording the moment. It's notoriously vague, especially if you're trying to think about thinking something and seeing the time. 
the re but much more importantly, the readiness potential occurs frequently without heralding any action and may signal the brain gathering evidence either for or against acting happens before a subject is even presented with options. So in the beginning of the experiment uh, and even with monkeys, before they've been asked to choose something, readiness potential is going off before they even get to make a choice. And there are sometimes readiness potentials when people don't move. Perhaps most clinchingly, EEGs um, shown to neurophysiological uh, experts, um, the experts couldn't discriminate between action and inaction. So Libet didn't actually think he'd disprove free will, which was just as well, because he didn't. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about permission. Great saying of Blake, every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight enclosed by the five senses. Enclosed by the five senses. That's interesting because we normally think of the senses as portals opening on the world. But perhaps there's something in it. Perhaps our senses help to sculpt reality. They're creative of a reality, but sometimes that may be by screening things out. Don't forget, when Michelangelo made one of his statues, he didn't put together arms and legs. He just cleared away stuff. An act of negation produced the masterpiece. And this is rather like Shelley's famous saying that life is like a dome of many-coloured glass that stains the white radiance of eternity. Or in a rather nice phrase, um, William James uh, said that perhaps our experience is like the air passing through vocal cords that shape my voice. If just the air passed without the restraint of the vocal cords, nothing would be created. So I have this theory that everything that is created does so because of resistance, which is why I think there is matter at all. But the cell membrane is interestingly a semiconductor. It carefully excludes some things and permits other things to pass. The physicist Bernardo Kastrup um, refers to an experiment in which mediums who could write in a trance um, were recorded, uh, their brain activity was recorded in a scanner while they were writing um, when they were not in a trance and when they were in a trance. And when they were writing not in a trance, all the usual bits lit up. But when they were in a trance, the frontal lobes and the hippocampus, pretty important really, were inactive. But when the writing was scored by blind observers, they scored the writing during the periods of minimal brain activity as being more complex than the other activity, the writing that was done under the normal circumstances. There's also an interesting phenomenon called terminal lucidity that Peter Fenwick has researched, and he certainly believes, and others do, and apparently people who work in care homes will spontaneously reported that people who are approaching death never more than a week before they die and most often in the 48 to 24 hours period before they die who may have been uh, speechless and incapable of function for years may suddenly become able to speak and to interact and very shortly after that they die so as their brain loses its grip something is released this is perhaps also what happens in near-death experiences which 
there seems to be good re recording of, said that this is because of the anoxia in the brain, but the experiences are nothing like those of people who normally suffer um, when, they ha when they suffer from brain anoxia and can have profound beneficial lasting effects on the individual lives who come back from the brink of death, uh, as in some uh, ayahuasca trips. Uh, Henri Bergson had an interesting theory about memory, that it wasn't so much to preserve and transmit experiences for us, but to mask aspects of the past for efficacy. So it would only uh, give us the bits that we needed, otherwise we couldn't uh, deal with it. And the experiments of Wilder Penfield, which are very well known uh, back in, I think, the 60s and 70s, um, done on exposed brains. When parts of the cortex were stimulated, people had memories of things that they had had no previous access to, but were uh, events from their past. So it seems that there's something there, but it's being filtered out for us. Less is often more, as in the dome of many colored glass, which by stopping the transmission of certain frequencies creates a picture. Um, so Stapp, uh, Henry Stapp, the physicist, um, gives the idea that the explanation of the interaction of consciousness with the brain is whereby a set of potential outcomes is narrowed to one actual outcome, is collapsed into one outcome out of many. One way of putting this is that potentiality is collapsed into the actual through the brain's interaction with consciousness, and that is what we experience. And this idea of resistance or filtering is an interesting one. The brain becomes more powerful as it grows by shedding neurons and by pruning connections of the existing neurons. And a primary function of the corpus callosum is to inhibit traffic. Probably the single most important function of the frontal lobes is to inhibit. And that's one of the de defining characteristics of primates' brains and human brains, why we're thought to be intelligent. And it's an interesting fact that primates have more inhibitory neurons than any other creatures, and human beings have more inhibitory neurons than any other primate. And for me, what this suggests is that a kind of restrictive process or resistance gives rise to something very creative. Here I go back to a favorite and rather obscure, I'm afraid, philosopher of the early 19th century, Schelling, who in a brilliant image, which is for me very um, suggestive, talks about individual consciousnesses as being like a vortex in a stream. So resistance in the stream causes the arising of a vortex for a while. And that vortex is there, it's measurable and photographable. And it's not separate from the water, it just is the water at that moment in time. It's not a se separate thing from the water, it's not an addition to the water, it's just the form the water takes. Now, for water you substitute consciousness. That might be one way of thinking. What is the consciousness of? Well, I say it's exactly consciousness of what it seems. It's not a projection on an internal screen in a home cinema inside my head viewed by a homunculus sitting on a cerebral sofa. And it's, as Donald Hoffman says, experiences are the real coin of the realm. The experiences of everyday life, my real feeling of headache, my real taste of chocolate, that really is contact with the ultimate nature of reality.
John, religious, uh, wrote um, Philosophy in the Flesh um, and Metaphors We Live By, say, as embodied imaginative creatures, we never were separated or divorced from reality in the first place. What has always made science possible is our embodiment, not our transcendence of it, and our imagination, not our avoidance of it. So what we experience is not a representation. For those of you who know my work on the hemispheres, one of the distinctions is that the left hemisphere conceives everything as a representation, whereas the right hemisphere seems to hold the presence of the experience, which then gets categorized as, oh, it's one of those. So it becomes a representation of itself in the left hemisphere. And many of the theories, um, internalist theories of consciousness, seem to me a, a particularly obvious example of the left hemisphere seeing that what it knows is a representation, whereas the right hemisphere, who doesn't do the talking and the theorizing, realizes it's actually experiencing the taste of pineapple when it experiences eating a pineapple. So what, after all, is consciousness for? Julian Huxley said, man is that part of reality in which and through which the cosmic process has become conscious and has begun to comprehend itself. This is rather like Pierre, uh, Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chardin, who said, man discovers that he's nothing else than evolution becoming conscious of itself. And again, Thomas Nagel, in more recent times, each of our lives is part of the lengthy process of the universe gradually waking up and becoming aware of itself. Out of quantum physics comes David Bohm. Quote, there is no need to regard the observer as basically separate from what he sees, nor to reduce him to an epiphenomenon of the objective process. More broadly, one could say that though the Sorry, through the human being, the universe has created a mirror to observe itself. In other words, consciousness is not to our purposes. We are to the purposes of consciousness. <coughs> now, if this is right, it makes some sense. I make no greater claim than that of some otherwise very hard problems. So if the material cosmos is an emanation or projection of a grounding consciousness, it will, as a matter of course, have the necessary, apparently fine-tuned conditions to come into existence, which is otherwise an inexplicable fact. It will naturally have qualities of order, beauty and complexity because it issues from a consciousness that, like us, is attuned to and gives rise to such elements. It will naturally produce conscious beings and the conscious beings will naturally be able to speak its language since they're generated by it. Of course, this doesn't answer the unanswerable question why there is something rather than nothing. It can do no more than postulate that the grounding consciousness is intrinsically creative and that part of its self-realization is the realization of the cosmos, something rather than nothing. Of course, this is to make assumptions, but it's impossible not to make assumptions. The standard materialist position makes assumptions of its own, e.g. that all is entirely random and meaningless, that nothing exists apart from matter, or that if consciousness exists, it comes about secondly at some point in evolution out of something fundamentally alien to consciousness, that the order and beauty and apparently purposive drive in things cannot be explained, as neither can our capacity to appreciate and understand them, and that these are all remarkable coincidences. On either my outline or this one, order still emerges out of chaos and things naturally complexify without outside intervention. 
the difference is that in the materialist paradigm, all that is inexplicable. So is the fine-tuning of the cosmos. Attempts to explain it result in the extravagant postulate that there is an infinite number of universes so that eventually one like this is bound to come about by chance. Well, to that I say Occam wept. Is consciousness wholly personal? Well, I'm inclined to agree with Einstein. A human being is a part, limited in time and space, of the whole that we call the universe. He experiences himself and his feelings as cut off from the rest, an illusion of his consciousness. Other physicists have embraced similar notions. David Bohm proposed human participation in a greater collective mind, in principle capable of going indefinitely beyond even the human species as a whole. And this is not unlike Jung's collective unconscious. James uh, imaged individual consciousnesses as like trees that above the ground seem separate, but whose root masses are um, inextricably intertwined, or like islands in the sea, which were all rooted in the seabed. I like the idea of vortices in a stream or waves in the sea, which are never separate from the water. They are the water for the time that they're there. They can move rocks. They can be photographed and measured, but they pass away. Or they're like villi on the surface of a cell, you know, like a pseudopodium coming out from a cell. If you were in the middle of that, you'd think that you were enclosed, whereas in fact at the foot of the villus, you were at one with the cytoplasm in the whole cell. Um, those of you who O-level biology will know what I'm rabbiting on about. So, I believe that what exists is a locally differentiated but ultimately single field of potentiality which is constantly actualizing itself. Thus, all is one and all is many. Each differentiation is, however, also a gestalt that is complete in itself, a new whole, not a fragment. We're not pieces uh, like something that's shattered. We are wholes that enrich the bigger whole to which we are, um, uh, in a way, um, uh, rather like a, a hologram uh, connected. This seems to me the essence of creation, differentiation of something that's not thereby destroyed in its unity, but enriched as with the unfolding of something hitherto implicit into a new, more explicit order, like the unfolding of a, of a bud into the flower, which is still that plant's bud or flower, but is now enriched, but it's still a whole, despite the parts. Um, and I see matter as a special case of consciousness, which is the primal stuff out of which the universe is made. Now, um, I'm just going to conclude, and I'm just going to throw out a few remarks about the hemisphere um, relevance of this. I've already pointed out, one, that seeing experience as presence of something, or seeing it as representation of something, um, would be typical of in the first case, the right hemisphere is taken, in the second, the left hemisphere is taken. And I believe a lot of Anglo-American analytic philosophy and a lot of cognitive neuroscience is very heavily um, influenced by just one way of seeing the world, the model that is typical of the way the left hemisphere tries to understand reality. Uh, and if there are types of attention that give rise to different kinds of world, um, then that would fit with this because how we paid our attention even at the physical, the, the, the microphysical effect could 
alter what happens. So Bohr says the mental content is invariably altered when the attention is concentrated on any single feature of it, which is exactly what the left hemisphere does. It concentrates on just one feature. And Bohr says this inevitably changes the physical content. Um, and he contended that this offers an essential clarification, uh, that finding of the physico, uh, sorry, the psychophysical uh, parallelism. And if reality is mental, as so many physicists keep stressing, and has a dual mode with mutually incompossible but nonetheless complementary features, which I suggest it does, both of which are needed, that constitutes a remarkable parallel between the complementarity of the physicists, where there are simultaneously, you can think of it as a wave or as a particle, as discrete, unified and separate, or as flowing, changing and unified with something else, never separate from it. This is an extraordinary, um, if you like, mirroring of the idea of our paradoxical mental life, uh, as I believe the hemisphere hypothesis um, suggests and you know those remarks corroborate the idea that within the complementarity one of the parties is ontologically prior to the other because all the physicists say that the mind element is prior to the matter element and that the wave is as it were trumps um, the manifestations of particle though both are needed the right hemisphere is needed the left hemisphere is needed but primary here would be the right now, that has taken us through an awful lot, and therefore I would have left millions of loose ends. So if you'd like to, it's free for all now for you to point out where I've completely failed to say anything coherent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Martha. Can I ask you to comment on, on a phenomenon for me? So this is something that comes from the world of drama. Um, and it's something that I've observed in, in groups of, of actors working together with a skilled tutor, that they come into a kind of um, a kind of mental connection in a circle, let's say, and that um, you see phenomena happening there where it seems like there's a sort of collective knowledge that emerges where they know things they didn't know before and they're able to do things they weren't able to do before. And when I read your work, um, it seems to me what pops into my head is there's some really interesting right brain activity going on there which normally would be suppressed and that what's happened in the in that particular context of drama and and it happens elsewhere as well um, is that by the conventions of that activity the left brain's been prevented from what it would normally do it would normally inhibit that brain to brain right brain to right brain connection but the nature of that activity is that it's allowed it to emerge that perhaps it would emerge more if we operated more like that. It's something that, generally speaking, we don't do and have forgotten how to do. I, I thought that was. I find that really interesting in our left-brain-dominated world. Um, and I just wanted to wonder if you think that's plausible. Well, no, I like that very much. Um, you, I, I would agree with that. I think that something quite extraordinary happens um, when we get together and sing together, make music together, dance together, and enchain our, our minds and our movements. And it's no um, surprise that this is an absolutely fundamental element in summoning consciousness of things beyond the material world in all cultures that have ever existed. So I do think it's a very important element. I mean, at the end, I think you asked me something about 
my new book or something, but I don't know whether that I'm just imagined that in a feverish way. I'd like to ask how soon we can buy it. <laughs> so, so, sorry, Niall, can you just repeat this for me, please? Niall? <laughs> well, um, the problem with that is I've got to, I've got to finish it um, first. But I, <laughs> I think I finished it sort of yesterday uh, or the day before. Um, but there's now going to be months of rewriting because it's twice as long as the Master and his emissary. I think my publisher will probably need um, cardiac resuscitation when he receives the manuscript. So um, it, there may be a little while. But I hope in the next 18 months, possibly in the next year. Thank you. Hi, um, my question's really about resonance and reverberation and reciprocity. Could you elabor elaborate a bit more on that? I think the, the reason my book was, is called, the new book is called The Matter With Things. It's a pun on several levels, but the left hemisphere starts from fragments and builds up. So it imagines that there are existing things independent of one another and that they then are put together into a static structure by the mind. However, in fact, nothing exists except in relation to something else. And there can be nothing without time and motion. And neither time nor motion can exist if there's only one element that is not relative to something else. So everything comes out of what I call a betweenness. Um, it isn't in this thing and that thing, and then when you put them together, there's something additive. There is a process that everything not only takes part in, but is. I, I, I'm a process philosopher, so I believe with Whitehead and many other, um, I think, distinguished philosophers, that it's much better to think of reality as constantly changing and moving and reforming rather than as in static, solid, knowable entities that then have to be related. And so there is this reciprocity and reverberation at the physical level, but that all the time we are interacting with reality and interacting with one another. It is a process of constant adjustment of something coming into being through something that is picking up something from someone else from something else. So this reverberation is at the ground of um, everything that exists. And I also think that um, it's also a moral, uh, it has moral implications that we are ultimately all connected, that what we do has an impact on everything else and that everything else has an impact on us as well and that we can't separate ourselves from in, you know from nature i was going to say the environment's the word i detest because it suggests that there's something around us that is just sort of there for us to use or you know deal with whereas actually we are nature in a in a sort of process of reverberative intercourse all the time that, that's really what i mean thank you thank you very much thank you uh, hi there. Thanks for the great, uh, awesome talk. So if uh, consciousness is primary or, or ontologically kind of uh, before matter, um, how, how is that different to idealism? Um, and, and secondly, I know that some uh, defenders of panpsychism don't believe in free will like uh, Galen Strawson. So um, you, you seem, that it seems like you do. And how, how, how can one distinguish these varieties of panpsychism? Thank you. Okay, very good questions. Um, I may not be able to answer them well. Um, 
in Barclayan idealism, uh, well, Barclay saves the day by having a god that always sees everything, so the moon doesn't have to disappear when I stop looking at it. But I don't believe that things are only there when we look at them, that they're always there for some thing other than themselves, which, um, as it were, uh, they offer affordances to, and that they are therefore present in some way in the cosmos, uh, depend and, and they can be multiply present, as it were, as they um, presence to me, and as they presence to another person, I will see a slightly different, whatever it is, apple, from the other person. Uh, in this, I'm not very far from the um, Italian philosopher Riccardo Manzotti, who believes that our consciousness is out there in the world exactly where we contact things, not, not here. I, I have difficulties with some parts of his theory, but I don't want to go into that right now. So I don't believe that everything is grounded in thought. I hoped I had made it clear that I think thought and matter are each required for there to be something, um, except that it is possible in a sense of sort of ultimate being, unlike the being of the cosmos and the things that we encounter in it, there could be just a great thought, as the Buddhists believe that there is just this consciousness that is the ground of absolutely everything. Um, but that very, very soon and almost immediately, in order to make itself what it is, it had to have the other pole of matter. And that this, the process of the universe is the complexification of this, the constant unfolding of unity into individuality, which is not, therefore, in any way diminishing the unity, but actually enriching it, because it never leaves that unity. It just unfolds a potential within it. Um, so I don't see that as at all like um, standard idealism. And I, you know, I, I immediately uh, I hoped that I distanced myself from the idea we make it all up and from the idea that it's just out there and we, it's our job to get to know it. Neither of these can possibly be right. It'd be right. There is this reverberative process exactly between something other than me and whatever it is I call me. So it's always arising out of that. Um, you made a second point, um, idealism, and then there was another one. Um, can you remember what it was? Uh, it's free will. Yeah. Free will. Yeah, okay, free will. Um, well, I think the first thing about free will is that um, you'd have to be living in the 18th century to believe that if you set the universe going like a deist god, everything then just unfolds. Of course it doesn't. I mean, the, the whole idea that we can't actually predict, not just because we're not good at predicting, but intrinsically it is impossible to predict exactly what the eighth billiard ball does, um, means that in the trillions and, well, infinite, almost infinite number of molecular interactions everywhere in the cosmos, you, you'd be lost instantly. So it, there is no question of there being a, a, a determining will. Um, we are, we're, but we're not und, undetermined either. As always, the extreme positions, which are typical of the left hemisphere, either it's idealism or it's, you know, materialism. Either it's determined or it's not determined. The answer is, I'm afraid, as the right hemisphere is able to see all those, these look like opposites to the left hemisphere is not a very subtle thinker. They are actually compatible, or at least compossible. Perhaps it's better, because the right hemisphere is able to bridge opposites. I finished my book with a chapter on the coincidence of opposites, which I think is a very, very important part to take into whatever philosophical system we espouse.
Thank you very much, Dave. Very good question. Yeah, good. So, um, although I sympathize very much with your with your ideas, um, a few times during during uh, your your talk, you you, you alluded to uh, the burden burden of proof and Occam's razor. So my question is: so my first question is, don't you think that actually it's the non-materialists who have the burden of proof, or even more specifically, don't you think that it's the non-monists? Who have the burden of proof because it's much simpler to postulate uh, just one type of stuff rather than two, two types of stuff and connection between those those stuff and my second question actually is about the current state of, of, of science because most of neuroscience and consciousness research and even cognitive psychology is pre preoccupied uh, is actually hinging on the materialistic assumption do you think that that research okay. that's going on right now is of any use yeah. if you reject materialism. Thank you. Reject simple materialism. I don't reject physicalism of a kind, of course. Um, what, what, um, I, I'm, I feel like I'd have to repeat the first half of my lecture to answer your first point, because I did the best I could in the space of time to show how it is really a non-starter to be monistic unless we sophisticate what that monism is. It's also a non-starter to be dualistic, if that means there are two separate substances. I never posited two separate substances. I posited one grounding substance that manifests in a certain way at a certain point as matter and as what we call consciousness at another, and that the brain and the mind are in the one case a material manifestation and in the mind case, an immaterial manifestation of an entity that is single and not to be separated, as it is in that brain and that consciousness at the time. Of course, I believe consciousness is much greater than Joe Bloggs's consciousness. It's the whole of the cosmos, but for the bit that's in that person's brain at the time. So, uh, no, the burden of proof is very definitely on those who want to show how um, how something like um, my experience of a sunset or of the four last songs comes out of a lump of grey jelly in my head. They have a, a foggiest idea, not the slightest idea. There is not even the vestige of a way in which it could happen. So that really is, you, the onus is on them to explain that. I can say that consciousness could give rise to matter because I experience matter within my consciousness. It, it may, it is in fact, as I know it, a manifestation in my consciousness. But I have no proof, and as Galen Strawson says, there is no single particle of truth uh, in the idea, it could be right, but it couldn't possibly be proven that um, my consciousness arises out of matter. So that's my answer to the first point. I mean, my my view on the second is I agree wholly. I mean, I just think it's it's a bit of a disaster that um, science seems to science goes through phases, and it had a marvelous phase in the first half of the 20th century when people threw all the sort of dogmas to the winds and discovered wonderful new things. I don't think we're in one of those rich phases at the time, partly because science now so much involves um, the coming together of bodies of people on expensive grants and 
corporate science is never as original or interesting as that produced by small groups and by individuals. There's a body of research on this which shows it very markedly. But also, we're, you know, we just bought hook, line and sinker, the extraordinarily simplistic worldview, because scientists, most of them don't do much philosophy and not interested in it, that, you know, obviously it's a machine. We're just machines. I mean, come on, get over it. I mean, that's what they say. You sort of think, well, did you do any reading of philosophy at all? Have you ever thought about whether there was another way of thinking about this? But apparently not. Uh, hello. I would like to ask, please, about um, uh, something related to um, the definition and what are the properties and specifically the uh, mechanisms of consciousness that are distinct from the ones of the brain. And I think there is a general acknowledgement that uh, uh, there is a requirement for some form of nervous system to support things like uh, language and uh, feeling, thinking, meta-thinking, and thinking of self, uh, as well as responding to one's environment. Uh, what remains in the definition and properties of consciousness without the properties that are uh, permitted by a nervous system? And if we say that consciousness exists anywhere, everywhere, isn't it uh, a sort of uh, tautologi tautological definition? And what is the value that it adds to our understanding of the whys of reality? Well, yes. Um... Obviously, with anything sui generis, to say that it exists, but not to be able to say what it's like, is inevitable. Uh, this applies to matter as much as it applies to consciousness, or to God, or, or to nature, or whatever. I mean, because there isn't something over against it, which we can easily say, well, it's defined by, by this, because defining always means separating it off from something else. So, yes, you're right, in that sense, it could be seen as tautological. But it gets around the very serious problem that consciousness can only be described where, as you mentioned, there's language or thinking about yourself. Um, you made a rather bold statement that there can only be feeling if you've got a brain or a nervous system. I, I haven't a clue why you say that. Have you ever been a plant? <laughs> I mean, I uh, how, do we, how do we know? How are you so certain? It seems to me that if consciousness can be of many kinds, it doesn't necessarily, even our own consciousness, often, most of it, is not to do with language or being aware of things. And we solve problems without language. In fact, it comes as a surprise to many people that Niels Bohr's notebooks, probably the most important testament to physics, um, uh, modern physics um, contain no words and no equations, only pictures. So, it, I mean, it's commonplace that we don't need language. We don't need to be thinking about ourselves to have an awareness. And if a if a, a if a fish can experience pain and go into an area that it would otherwise be afraid of because it's got a pain-killing substance, it's feeling pain. Why do you suddenly draw? The, where are you going to draw the line? At a mollusk? or at a plant, or I think you're on a very slippery slope, and I don't know where it's going to end up, because at some point you're going to be faced with brute emergence. And brute emergence is a miracle. The only way to avoid being entirely illogical is to be a panpsychist. It's the only rational alternative. And it's being seen as such by many philosophers now, as you know, and because it means shaking off the burden of the old-fashioned materialism, it'll just take time. But it, it's a gathering, it's a snowball that's gathering strength, I believe.
thank you for a really fascinating lecture. Uh, one thing that interests me is always why well, it's always men that come and ask questions. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my, my, my kind of, I, I wonder if you could maybe expand a little bit more on the role of the brain in consciousness, because I think maybe I misunderstood this, but you said there's, a brain is not necessary for consciousness, but then the different hemispheres of the brain have different ways of interpreting it. So could you say a little bit more about the role of it? Thanks. Yes, sure, sure. As you know, I, I've already made clear that I, and I don't think anyone else I've ever read, can really explain exactly what the mechanisms of the brain's relationship to consciousness is, but we know there is a relationship. My suggestion is that it is a, a, a permissive one, not a purely transmissive one, in a passive way. In other words, it selects um, what it's going to deliver to uh, um, our awareness. I think that awareness or consciousness exists everywhere, as you say. I think that it is um, restricted or resisted or closed down in a valve-like way by the consciousness of living creatures into forms that it wouldn't have if it wasn't in those living creatures, and that human brains just happen to be the most remarkable in their in the resistance they offer, the moulding, shaping, sculpturing capacity they have. Um, so I think that um, a nettle has produced some kind of awareness. Interestingly, plants um, do use the same substances that the brain uses as neurotransmitters, um, in their messaging between parts of the plant and between one plant and another. So we don't know, you know, a tenth of it. And the more we know, the more we ought humbly to recognise that we don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I know anything at all here. I'm giving you some thoughts that make sense to me. And all I'm hoping to give is a better gestalt than the one served up to me. In other words, a better picture of a whole in which things fit. It's the analogy of an out-of-focus picture which suddenly comes into focus and you see things. That's all I'm doing. And what I would say is, just ask yourself, does the picture I've suggested make better sense? Don't say it answers all the problems. Does it make better sense than the conventional picture? I think that picture fails to include pretty much everything that's important in the description of human consciousness. Um, and I want to put that back in. And I think I've come up with a, a formulation, which in time, I hope people will uh, chuck away and find a better one. But I want to be one of the stepping stones on which, as it sorry to mix metaphor, on which the next, that's really all I'm doing. Hi there, Ian. I, I want to ask you a question of, uh, about evolution. Now, evolution mm. and, the, and the role that panpsychism may be playing in the evolutionary process. So uh, most people accept evolution supports a, a, a theory of sort of unfolding into potential. And as the environment around us changes, there is an evolutionary process that seems to sort of rush into that potential. But there are some disputes inside evolutionary theory about What's actually going on at the molecular level? And is the materialist account of how the, the molecular process of evolution functions? The idea that there are random mutations that can generate random new proteins and chemicals that would 
afford some benefit to the cell, the, the mathematical calculations seem to indicate that most, most of those random mutations will probably be toxic. Therefore, ones that are likely to accord benefit to a cell are very small. And then if you roll that up and say, if there are an accretion of multiple uh, mutations that can afford some functional benefit to the organization in its changing environment, that the, if you do the mathematical equations on that, it seems like remotely improbable that random mutations could afford new functionality that would be useful in the world. So the conclusion comes, is there some sort of directedness being afforded at that level that directs this process? And is panpsychism a way of starting to understand how that directedness, if there is indeed any, might be operating? Well, um, well that's a, a very good question. Um, I, I, I can say very few things, but the first is, um, I think it's very convincing that we can no longer accept the idea that mutations are simply random and you wait for, uh, you, you go through all the toxic ones before you find the one that, that actually works. Not only would we have, have to have infinite numbers of universes, but you know, even a small change would take a completely unrealistic time. So I, I don't think that, I think that there are, as it were, in a, in a valley, in, in the valleys of a landscape, um, water drops can fall anywhere, but they will preferentially be channeled into certain grooves. And I think that the, the formation of um, the cosmos is such that there are grooves, as it were, that cause things to um, fall into certain patterns. Um, and you can call that purposiveness, because I believe it is, um, I don't believe in um, a, an engineering god, absolutely not. I don't believe that there's a, an almighty being tinkering with things and saying, oh, we'd better rescue uh, an octopus by having... Of course not. But, I mean, that's just stupid. But I, what I do think is that we can't rule out that purpose is intrinsic to the universe. If consciousness is, I believe values are, I argue in my book that values such as beauty and truth and goodness are actually, because they're parts of consciousness themselves, they are actually built into the stuff of the cosmos. I don't expect to convince many people right now, but see what I have to say when I've said it. Um, and I would say purposiveness is one of those values and that it, it does operate there. And you have these really extraordinary things to contend with, like, you know, an experiment in which, um, the gene for eyes was removed from flies and they were bred and of course the offspring had no eyes and their offspring had no eyes and this process went on but after not many generations they started to have eyes again um well interesting but it seems to me it's hard to deny that there might be a shaping form really what rupert sheldrake but we'll be hearing from him later would call um, a morphogenetic field that says we need this capacity to come forth. If Simon Conway Morris is right that eyes um, uh, have been uh, evolved not just once, but possibly 10 or 11 times in the history of life, um, that is extraordinary because it's a, such a complex thing that needs so many things to work together. 
that out of this random sea, I mean, I know people will dogmatically assert that, well, you just don't understand it can, but there are too many other people whose word I trust as well who say it can't. Um, and a lot of them are pretty good on physics and mathematics. So I, I would reject the idea that it's all random. I think purpose is um, a foundational element in consciousness in the cosmos. Um, when, if you ask me more to explain, then, you know, my friend, I can't. I, that's it. <laughs> for now. All right, that's all we've got time for. Let's give Dr. McGilchrist a, a warm round of applause and we'll direct the line.